Hello and welcome to Heilman and Haver, the stage and screen experience, coming to you in podcast form from Casa de Quinn and 1111 Studios on the beautiful shores of Puget Sound, Washington. Welcome to episode 74. I'm Greg Heilman. And I'm Matt Haver. Back in 2020, we took to the internet airwaves as two actors just looking to hone our craft, interviewing talented local actors and directors. Now, over 70 shows later, thanks to you, Heilman and Haver is Seattle's number one stage and screen podcast, bringing you in-depth interviews with the likes of Emmy Award winners and best-selling authors, unsung heroes and industry leaders, and the finest talent from L.A. to Broadway to the U.K. All while keeping our pulse on the Seattle and Pacific Northwest theater scene with in-depth reviews, awards, cast and crew conversations, and behind-the-scenes tours and interviews. Find them all at HeilmanandHaver.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And don't forget to visit the video section of our website and YouTube channel for our In The Mix segments. If you've been a listener for long, you know there are two things Mr. Heilman and I both enjoy, especially when taken together, cocktails and classic film. Nothing sends you back to the time of the Dames and Duesenbergs like a Paloma or a Gin Sling. And today we're joined by a man who is a connoisseur of both fine film and fine libations, the czar of noir himself, Eddie Muller. Eddie produces, programs, and hosts a national network of noir city film festivals, including right here in Seattle, presented under the auspices of the Film Noir Foundation, a nonprofit corporation he founded in 2005 to rescue and restore films from America and abroad. The foundation also publishes Noir City Magazine, the world's leading publication on classic and contemporary noir. Eddie is also the host of TCM's Noir Alley and the prolific author of crime fiction like The Distance and is a recipient of the Raven Award from the Mystery Writers of America. His other books include biographies like Tab Hunter Confidential, cinema histories including Dark City, The Lost World of Film Noir, and the upcoming children's book, Kid Noir, Kitty Farrell and the Case of the Marshmallow Monkey. His latest book, Eddie Muller's Noir Bar, Cocktails Inspired by the World of Film Noir, Eddie pairs classic cocktails and modern noir-inspired libations with behind-the-scenes anecdotes and insights on film favorites like The Asphalt Jungle, The Big Sleep, and Nightmare Alley. Eddie Muller's Noir Bar hits shelves on May 23rd and is available for pre-order now and linked in our show notes. Eddie joins us from his home in the Bay Area. Welcome to the show, Eddie. Welcome. I am, I, welcome, guys. I'm very happy to be here. All right, we're glad to have you. And Indeed. we're glad we're glad uh, to see your new book, uh, Noir Bar, which uh, we received preview copies of a little while ago. And I've already scrubbed all the pages for some of the uh, the really cool stuff in there. But it may be, out of all the books you've written, and you've written quite a bit, none more timely than this book, Noir Bar. I mean, not only is film noir going through kind of a, um, a bit of a renaissance, but with COVID, it, it led to an increase in, you know, we all stayed indoors, and we all took up <laughs> mixology as a hobby. I know I did. Um, and my liquor cabinet, you can ask Matt, my liquor cabinet is, is busting at the seams. It's a beauty. Um, but this book... Reading through it, the first thing I thought of when I saw the uh, the Blue Gardenia piece was, man, I would have saved hours of looking at the internet to try to figure out how to make a pearl diver. <laughs> so uh, my point is, with the conversion of noir's popularity and the growth of amateur mixology, the book couldn't have come at a better time. Was there a specific moment for you that sparked this idea, or have you kind of been ruminating on this for a little while? <laughs> well, I, I, yes, it obviously, I think in many ways, uh, COVID was the impetus for doing this, but it had been brewing for quite a long time. I mean, I can give you a funny answer to this, or I can give you a more, a more thoughtful, serious answer <laughs> to this. But when uh, COVID happened, you know, I had to do my show from home. 
I had to do the, the Noir Alley on TCM. I had to record it at home. And TCM, you know, the emergency plan was they sent me a ton of equipment uh, so that I could do this, right? But I was I was by myself. I mean, nobody was coming in here. I had I had no cameraman or grips or anything. I'm doing it all myself, right? I, I think you guys might be able to relate. <laughs> oh yeah. So I had this equipment, and I I suddenly was like back in film school, you know, because back in the '70s I, I was I was going to be a filmmaker, and I learned how to light a set and do all this stuff, and so it it all came back in a rush. And then after I'd shoot the show and I was relaxing, it was like. Oh, look, I got this camera here and I got this stuff, you know, what can I do? So I started doing cocktail stuff to post on YouTube. And, and I probably did, I, I don't know how many of those I did, right? I, on a, I created my own and I am not a social media guy, believe me. And then all of a sudden I found myself doing this and then it became like an obligatory thing and people were like digging it. And then it was like, ah, oh, my God, what have I created? How am I going to get out of this? <laughs> well, the book was the answer. <laughs> How am I going to get out of this? Right. And so it was so funny because my editor, Running Press, who published the book, uh, fabulous. They did such a great job with it. Uh, but when I was talking to my editor about another book project, because we they also published uh, Dark City, The Lost World of Film Noir, the revised and expanded edition of that. And it did so well that they said, what do you want to do next? And we were talking about ideas. And then uh, Cindy, Cindy Sapala, my editor, said, you know, what about a cocktail book? And I said, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I would do that in a heartbeat. And she said, well, prepare a proposal. And I said, well, here's the link to my YouTube channel. Because <laughs> she, had, she had never seen that I had done all these things already, right? So that, that was kind of how it started. But I'm I'm much more a print guy. I'm so old school. I'm a print guy. I mean, I want a beautiful book that you can mm -hmm. hold in your hands and all that stuff. And and I just couldn't be happier with the way the whole thing turned out. Now you've got a beautiful book. Uh, it's visually really a lot of fun to go through. Not only the the old stills from the films, but the graphics, the photography. I, I really loved it. You really captured that feeling of noir. Uh, with the uh, with just the whole layout, and uh, you had a couple of folks uh, helping you, Jessica Schmidt, Forrest Burdett. Uh, how did that team come about? And is that that a group you put together, or was that a um, your publishers? Actually, you're uh, you're getting ahead of yourself because Jessica and Forrest worked on another book with me that okay. has that hasn't come out yet. Oh, gotcha. But I'm just gonna take your cue there and go yeah. straight to this this team. Uh, which is a fella named Paul Keppel was the designer of Noir Bar. And Paul is a world-class designer. Uh, he did all the print collateral material for Hamilton, the stage play. And he's done books with J.J. Uh, Abrams and David Lynch. And I, I was very, very lucky to get him at a point when he used to work for the publisher and then went off and created his own design agency. And uh, the uh, production designer at uh, Running Press called him and said, you might be interested in this one. You know, can we coax you back into the fold to design this? And Paul said, yeah, I'd love to do this book. And I, I just felt so fortunate because I flew back <laughs> 
masked up and everything. I flew back to Philadelphia where he has his agency and we spent three or four days where I was actually making the cocktails in his studio. And then a wonderful photographer named Steve Legato took the pictures and a prop stylist, Kelsey Windmiller, uh, styled everything, which is basically providing the, the cool backdrops and all this stuff. And then Steve would light the cocktails and I would make them. I actually made the cocktails that are seen in the book. And then Paul would design these fabulous layouts. I mean, he went so far as to create, you know, new typography for the various cocktails that is in many cases based on the title sequences of the films. So if you look at like a fallen angel cocktail or, you know, the Betty Grable cocktail that's tied in with I Wake Up Screaming, he's actually simulating the title sequences of those movies and, and many others. I mean, it was just, I love working with really, really creative, talented people. And uh, this crew was fantastic. Yeah, how much fun that had to be. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it was yeah. truly collaborative too, that you got, you know, working together at the same time versus uh, having the idea or supplying the text and having them go and design it and back and forth. Sound like you did a lot of this in the same room together. We did. Uh, there's no substitute for that. And I was so grateful to the publishing house for agreeing to do that. Because I, I think it was a special case where they said, we really want Eddie to be there with the crew. And it worked. It, it really provided an extra level of energy and excitement to the whole thing. And there, were, there was just great stuff because Paul is such a, he's so creative and he's so intuitive that we would be doing stuff and he would immediately like, he, he'd be designing a page layout while we were preparing the cocktail. And Steve's like setting up the lighting. And then I could say, well, you know, there's a scene in the movie where this happens and we could try to simulate that. And a lot of times you will work with people where they would say, dude, give me a break. You know, we just want to get this done. <laughs> <laughs> Too many bartenders behind the bar. Yeah. But in, but, in, but in this case, every time I offered something like that, their attitude was, oh, that's awesome. That's cool. Let's see if we can do that. You know, so I, like I said, I felt very, very fortunate. Well, you've got a little bit of everything in this book. You've got gin drinks, rum drinks, martinis, champagne cocktails, and even a couple of tiki drinks. Not too, not too many tiki not, drinks. Not, not too many, but they are there. <laughs> well, you know, you mentioned you mentioned the pearl diver, and uh -huh. that that one I had to include because it's one of the rare instances where a cocktail is actually called by name in a film, right? Where it's like, well, what are we drinking? Oh, it's a Polynesian pearl diver, right, from the Blue Gardenia, and. Ann Baxter gets really ripped drinking a few too many of these, <laughs> yeah. right? Uh, and and it's a complicated cocktail to make. And it so I, I I said to somebody the other day, I was joking around, and they, they somebody said, I sure hope you gave a recipe for the pearl diver and that it's easier to make than other ones I've seen. <laughs> and I said, I said, there are no easy ones. I mean, that's the whole point, right? You got to work hard to make this cocktail. And I said, if Ann, if Ann Baxter had made this drink herself, she never would have had any problems in that movie because she wouldn't have had four of them. She would have just had the one and said, I'm done. I'm not going through all this trouble again. Well, and the great thing is you may, you, you go to so much trouble to make this mix and you make so much of it that you just have to drink it for like the next two weeks. I mean, it's... it's that is a summer summertime uh, drink, definitely. <laughs> it is, yes, for sure. But you've also created some of your own uh, noir cocktails. The Belita for one, 
And my favorite out of the ones you've created, The Sailor Beware, from paired with the Orson Welles film, The Lady from Shanghai. Um, now, when so, you, now, I got to ask, when you say it's your favorite, is that because you actually made one and drank it? Yes, I did. Oh, very good. That makes me extremely happy to hear that. <laughs> yes, I've, I've, made, I've made a few. My, my goal is to do the, the Julie and Julia thing and just go through all of them at some point. But time being what it is and uh, my liver being what it is. And I'm going to taste test for them. <laughs> well, I'm telling you that that that's that's the best. I mean, that's what I love about doing a book like this is, you know, the review is I made the cocktail and I really loved it. I mean, that's the review, right? Yeah, I mean, the re- the rest of it is fine, but that's where the rubber meets the road here, you know. Oh, so for sure. thank thank you for saying that because I'm very proud of that cocktail. Yeah, I would I would I would love that to become like a a real thing in cocktail programs and stuff or in bars that would be fantastic I, I will tell you one funny tidbit about that that cocktail was originally called the lady from shanghai that's what i called it right and i thought that's how it's going to become a staple right because people are going to equate it with the film and it's going to be hey bartender i want a lady from shanghai right i thought that sounded so cool but then I had so much respect for Paul Keppel as a designer that when he was doing the book, he said, you have to call it something else because I don't want to use the title of the film and the name of the cocktail on the same page. It looks bad design-wise to repeat the lady from Shanghai. And I said, but Paul, that's the one. That's the that's the drink that I've created that is the best of all of them that I made for this book. And I want to call it A Lady from Shanghai. And only because I respected Paul so much did I cave in. <laughs> and I said, okay, I'll call it something else. And that's, I chose, I had to do a lot of research to make sure that there wasn't another cocktail called a Sailor Beware. And amazingly, you would think that's a, that would be a standard thing on a tiki bar menu right yeah or somewhere in new england or somewhere yeah 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 you know i mean they have the missionaries downfall and all this stuff (laughs) in tiki bars but you would figure there's a sailor beware but there wasn't so i adopted that one and let's let's hope it becomes a a real thing you know well that might need to become the official cocktail of heilman and haver because we have our uh, in the mix segment where we kind of do the same as what you were doing during covid you know the quarantine is Find a film or find a, uh, an actor or maybe an anniversary of something, a birthday, and make a cocktail that links with that person or maybe that film. Lady from Shanghai, one of my favorite Orson Welles films. Uh, it's funny, the most response we've gotten on our YouTube channel was probably the, the weirdest drink we made, and it was the Alaskan polar bear heater from The Nutty Professor. <laughs> and like Greg spoke about, you know, hey, what, you make enough of this stuff, you've got to finish it. And we, of course, we had one on camera, and then we had one off camera. And surprisingly okay. But it's always funny because we get our email, you know, pops up. Hey, another comment on that Alaskan polar bear heater. But I, I got to ask you, you know, you bartended in the Bay Area. Uh, it was one of your first jobs, correct? Correct. Yeah. So were there any other drinks in the book from bygone days, uh, some favorites that you used to make or anything? Maybe it was like, you know, one of the first cocktails you remember making, something like that, that kind of had a, uh, you know, kind of that nostalgia for you? Uh, that's an interesting question. You know, when I started bartending, it was not a trendy thing whatsoever, because this was in the 1970s. And let's face it, in the San Francisco Bay Area in the 1970s, people were smoking dope. They weren't, <laughs> they weren't drinking cocktails, right? 
the whole cocktail culture renaissance had not happened. But for some reason, probably because of my love for these old movies where everybody drank cocktails, right? I was like, I want to learn how to do that. But back then, the drinks were like, you know, Harvey Wallbangers, mm -hmm. stuff like that, where, you know, and none of those particularly appealed to me. I mean, the, the, the one that is totally not correct for that I include in the book that has no connection to film noir at all is the Tequila Sunrise. But I included it because of Robert Wagner because he did this film called A Kiss Before Dying. And I had, when I went on a TCM cruise with Robert Wagner, we drank a lot of tequila together. <laughs> and, and I thought like, I wanna make a, and he made one noir film, right? This uh, Kiss Before Dying. And I said, I'm gonna make this cocktail in his honor. And because it's a color noir, I thought the color of the Tequila Sunrise cocktail felt very much like the color scheme of the movie. And so I included that, even though, that drink wasn't created, you know, 20 years after the movie was made, right? It's a total 70s cocktail. Anyway, it's interesting. I mean, researching this stuff and figuring out what to include was really a lot of fun because it led me to, um, there's a website, I'm embarrassed to say, I can't remember the link right now. You're going to get a lot of calls or emails from people saying, give us that link. <laughs> which there's a website you guys may already know it that has all these cocktail recipe books all the way back to the 1800s and they have scanned them and put everything up on the site and you can just scroll through everything and find old cocktails it's absolutely fantastic and so i was able to go and find a lot of like prohibition era cocktails that were named after actors you know, the Lee Tracy cocktail, the Joan Blondell, the Joan Bennett, the Ann Sheridan, these were all created in like the early to late 30s. And they were just fantastic. And so to, I was able to discover those and tie them into the, the noir films that these people made. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, you've got the, the, the kind of the prohibition era cocktails, those simpler ones that are maybe more tied to some of the pre-code films, and then you get into noir, and then and things start to become a little more complicated. Um, and then you get, and I, I loved your comment about the, uh, I forget how you put it in your introduction about kind of the hipster thing where everybody's making these, these weird ingredients and trying to put things together that's just kind of gotten out of hand that you've tried to stay away from, and thank you for that. Get this um, cedar branch out of my drink. I, I mean, I... I like all of that. I find that all kind of interesting. I want somebody to make one of those drinks for me. I don't, I don't want to stay home and make them myself, right? But I also was very aware that because of the Noir Alley show and that it is on a weekend night, a lot of people watch it on Saturday nights, right? That it's become a thing that people tune in and they drink a cocktail with the movie. So it's not like something that we're making up or, or or suggesting that people do. They they already do it, right? <laughs> so it's it, so it's like, well, okay, then try these. But I was very aware of the fact that I didn't want it to be a hipster kind of book. I, I wanted it to be more reflective of the original era that these films came from. So I tried to stay away from 
overly complicated uh, stuff. And, and sometimes that, you know, it went in the reverse, like the Lee Tracy cocktail, which was from the early 30s, is made with slow gin. And it's really hard to find any cocktails today made with slow gin, right? And not only that, it, it's slow gin, dry curacao, and absinthe, right? So like two of those ingredients, you're just not really going to find if it was like five years ago. Mm-hmm. You're not going to find slow gin or absinthe in any liquor store five years ago. But now you you can. Yeah. Did you run into any situations where like we we did a segment about the uh, the Vesper Martini and is it is it Lillette Blanc that is yeah. not made anymore? Yeah. So it's did you run into any uh, recipes that where you just you couldn't find the ingredients yeah. anywhere? Kino it, Lillet, a, yeah. Uh, Kino yeah. Lillet, that's right. Yeah. Kino yeah. Lillet, yeah. Uh, which I, and I do make a reference to that in the book, in fact, that you're yeah. not going to find it wasn't for a Vesper, it was for something else. But I said, you know, you're not going to find this anymore. On occasion, like I wanted, um, I did a Brooklyn cocktail, which is a real thing, uh, in honor of Barbara Stanwyck, my favorite actress of all time. And Emma Picon is is one of the ingredients in that, which is not easy to find, right? It's not readily available in the United States. I I still have two bottles that I brought back from France when I was there. <laughs> and it's like, I'm, it's like, I have to parcel this out judiciously, <laughs> you know, because I don't know where I'm going to find this. It, it may be available now, but a few years ago, it was not. But I, I on occasion, I will use a, a hard to find ingredient, but it's something I tried to stay away from. Yeah, I did find that the recipes are all very accessible from uh, anyone who's got a basic bar set up and it was nice to see that i've got because a lot of times i'll see things and need to go get a bottle for something that's one ounce and then i end up that bottle sits on my shelf for years but thankfully uh, the majority of uh, your recipes i already have the stuff so it makes it very accessible and i think people are going to find that they've already got the things in their liquor cabinet that um, it'll make it even more popular well I'm i'm glad to hear you say that because that was a very conscious decision on my part I, I didn't want people to you know they're paying 26 dollars or whatever it is to buy the book i don't want them to break the bank and then like <laughs> now i have to go out and spend 400 dollars buying the booze you know and i also stayed away from you know trying to be too specific about what brand you have mm-hmm. to have you know it's like yeah you know figure it out for yourself right i mean everybody has their go-to gin and bourbon and rye or scotch whatever and so you know make this stuff be creative have fun figure out what works best for you and it becomes yours you know it becomes your drink and i'm just trying to give people ideas and and have fun with it you know i'm not being a total stickler on this stuff well and i also appreciated the fact that for those of us who don't have a i'll call it a mature bar set up that you kind of explain how to do that, kind of some of the basics, some of the equipment you need, a few of the glasses you'll need. And again, without breaking the bank uh, to become a, you know, an adequate bartender for yourself or a few friends. And so now I'm, I'm curious about uh, maybe going back a few years before you're doing a lot of this stuff, uh, you know, on purpose. Was there any time when you sat down and you watched a movie and a movie, like you said, maybe they're not always mentioned. The cocktails aren't mentioned by name, but it kind of puts you in mind of a cocktail. Or maybe you sat down with a cocktail and having this encyclopedic knowledge of film like you do in noir film 
you had the cocktail and it reminded you of a movie? Oh, that's an interesting question. Wow. I I don't actually know. What was I'm going to I'm going to spin that a little bit because what was the most fun about doing this book was watching a movie and then rewatching a movie from the point of view of if I was going to make a cocktail based on this film, what would it be? How how would that work out, right? And it was a very interesting experience because as a bartender, I had never before made my own drinks. I never concocted a drink. I was just making stuff from the standard, you know, from the Patrick Duffy bar guide or, you know, whatever, Jerry Thomas or something, you know. Uh, but when you act like the Sailor Beware, it really was sort of like, okay, there are four main characters. There's four, You're going to put four ingredients in the drink. What booze represents these characters you know and then when i did the belita you i'm glad you mentioned that one earlier because belita is one of my you know passions in noir that nobody no you know totally obscure actress nobody knows about her uh but i said if i was making a belita cocktail it has to be a frozen cocktail because she was an ice skater right, <laughs> right. and and it obviously has to be blue because of the ice you know you want the blue ice and and so it was just, it's fun just, and gin, because she was British. So if you're British, it's like you automatically gin is the of base course. spirit. Yeah. So just thinking in that way became very interesting for me. It was like an, it was like an eight months of my life for every movie I watched, I was just thinking about the booze that went along with it, right? So, uh, but to your question, I'm, I'm not sure if I've ever like uh, done it the other way. Like, you know, starting with the cocktail and working back. I, I don't know. The horse's neck always stands out from In a Lonely Place because they make such a big deal out of it. And I don't know if you've seen the, the film, but, you know, Bogart in his smoking jacket and he's got an at-home bar and he's making this drink. And the, the woman that he's brought home with him says, oh, I'll just have a horse's neck, you know. And he's like, the hell is that? <laughs> <laughs> and and it's just, it's nothing it's ginger ale and a you know big spiral of lemon you know that's it and uh but if you know i strongly suggest uh bumping that up with a little bourbon or something <laughs> something bogey would have had in his yeah exactly <laughs> exactly is there a non-noir drink associated with a movie that stands out as as maybe a favorite of yours boy you guys are putting me on the spot now. <laughs> not, I know there's something that's like hysterically great that I'm I'm just spacing out on. Um, I I don't remember what they drink in uh, this pre great pre code movie called One Way Passage. Do you know? This oh, movie? that's was, exactly where I was going. Cause it's the Paradise, which is my favorite. Oh, so the that's, Paradise. That's, that's it. That's yeah. it. Yeah. So there, we were on the same page. I go. just couldn't. But uh, the Paradise with William Powell and Kay Francis. Yep. It's, yeah, it's just. Uh, the whole drinking thing in that movie, you know, aboard ship is just so fantastic. And the breaking of the glass and the whole thing. I love all of that. And um, yeah, that was uh, Wilson Meisner, who was the character that William Powell plays is kind of based on Wilson Meisner, who wrote the treatment for that movie. And he's actually in the movie. He's one of the guys in the bar in the movie. Incredible character. So yes, that that's one that stands out. And I can tell you that this uh, 
this is not an ad or anything, but uh, it's going to be great fun doing the TCM cruise this fall. Now that I have this book, because <laughs> <laughs> I can I can imagine that we'll probably do some kind of barroom based something on the cruise, you know, w- with this book as the centerpiece. That'll be great fun. And that's in November. It is in November. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I know it's on one of the Disney cruise ships, if I'm not mistaken, too. It is. I can't remember which one. It's a, It's one we have not been on before. So I'm I'm greatly looking, and it's also leaving from the West Coast as opposed from from Florida, where all the other ones have left from. And uh, I'm I'm looking forward to it because th- those are great fun. The cruises are great fun. Well, speaking of of that, kind of along the same lines, we just had the second uh, Noir City Seattle back after COVID. I didn't get a chance to go to this year's. I saw you let uh, do the intros for the first weekend and last year's the first one back. How does it feel to be back out on the road hosting these events with actual people um, after COVID? It's got to be uh, pretty exciting for you. It's ex- I think it's exciting for everybody. Uh, I just think being able to be back out in public and watching movies as a group is a tremendous thing. I'm very, very proud of how well these Noir City festivals do in a time when Everything is, you know, we're all being told that the movie going experience is ending. You know, the movies, first run movies are in decline. Repertory cinemas are dying out. All of this stuff, like, you know, there's no turning back the tide. And then we do our festivals and we fill theaters. You know, the Egyptian theater in Seattle is pretty much full Mm -hmm. every day and night during noir city and i i understand that it's a special thing but it's not that big a deal i mean we're showing old films and there's a little extra razzmatazz we put on it you know with the we'll have some jazz musicians or something i i really loved it when we had that seattle burlesque troupe came out and did a whole show with us that was fantastic they were great we got some great ones in seattle yeah and so you know, you just do a little extra to, you know, as gift wrap on the movies. And I have found that people who are so inclined and they come in all ages and colors and, you know, it's not who you suspect it is that relates to this. But if you if you put the bat signal up there, people will respond, you know. And it, it's fantastic. And so, yeah, more than just it's nice to see people back congregating again. I, I feel very uh, proud of the fact that this film series that I create, it's been over 20 years now that I've been doing this, that it continues to draw really, really, really well. And that we survived COVID. And a lot of people told me that this is the first public thing that I've done since COVID was come to your film festival. And that, that means that means a lot to me. Well, you've been dubbed the czar of noir. And uh, who better to ask about the definition of noir? Uh, I'm a relative newcomer to noir. Uh, I like noir literature. I guess I would, I would call it that. Uh, just read To Have and Have Not by Hemingway. Excellent book. You know, Raymond Chandler, uh, some of these other authors from that era. Hammett comes to mind, obviously. Uh, but as far as film goes, and obviously a lot of these films came from from books, 
What is your definition of noir? Sometimes it gets, you know, mistakenly categorized, uh, the years that relate, all those types of things. Is there a film that perfectly captures the essence of noir? And and maybe a, a, the flip side of that, is there a film that's not noir but gets mistaken as noir regularly? You have to kind of correct people. Okay, you probably get that a lot. Well, the the two movies that are the exemplars of the form, because I'm going to even hesitate to call it a genre because it isn't absolutely a genre. I mean, it's mostly it's crime movies. Uh, but the two movies are Double Indemnity and Out of the Past are the two films that I always tell people, if you want the crash course, if, you, if you're not going to commit to a month of watching these films, you just want a night of watching the films, then do a double bill of Double Indemnity and Out of the Past and you'll you'll get it, right? So what noir is, is an organic artistic movement that happened in the 1940s that really was an outgrowth of the Depression because artists were not allowed to fully express the breadth of their vision (laughs) during the Depression because Hollywood's job was to boost morale and uh, make people, you know, all those pre-code movies, you guys are familiar with this, right? If that had kept going, noir probably would have been born a lot sooner as a movement because the seeds of it were already there in a lot of these pre-code films, right? But then the crash happened and then the production code came along and it, it stalled everything. So, and then right when noir literature started to really take hold, in the late 30s and early 40s, then World War II happened. And so that kind of put another, you know, bookmark, like we can't really make these adaptations of this stuff yet. So when it was obvious that we were going to win the war, the surprising twist to this story was that instead of making, uh, instead of the movement coming out of Hollywood being celebratory because we'd saved the world and won the war, It was just the opposite. It was like artists who'd been longing to make films that were like the anti-myth. You know, it's not going to end happily ever after. They finally were liberated by winning the war and they got to make those movies. And And the studios allowed it to happen because they were sexy, because the movies were very sexy. And they, it was something that hadn't been seen before. It didn't cost a lot of money to make them. And so for a while there, everybody was pumping these out. Every, you know, the eight studios in Hollywood, they were all making at least 10 of these a year because they, they didn't cost a lot of money. And then the actors were a huge part of it because they said, oh, this is cool. You know, the lead doesn't have to be a hero. I want to play that character. Right. And so you found like when Tyrone Power made Nightmare Alley, it was like, here's, you know, Zorro suddenly (laughs) playing this sinister, horrible person on screen. Obviously, it's lifetime was limited because the studios said, okay, and enough of that. You guys had your fun. (laughs) You know, Uh, but but that's kind of how it happened. That, and and it, its influence is still felt to this day. 
because it was really it was a it was an artistic movement led by artists. It was not led by the the money guys. It was not led by the producers. It was the artists saying we want to do this. You know, those movies look the way they look because the cinematographers said this will look really great. Let's do it this way. Right. And and everybody started copying it. So it's Hollywood, right? If something succeeds, keep doing it. <laughs> Anything from recent years that uh, that puts you in mind of these wonderful noir films or as an, kind of an homage, anything uh, that even get gotten close? It, it, there's so much of it that it's kind of, I, I can't just pick one thing because, look, I, I'm kind of an expert in this stuff. So I see the underpinnings of it in everything. You right. know, if you... If you want to talk about the Coen brothers, you want to talk about yeah. Martin Scorsese, you want to talk about Christopher Nolan, uh, David Fincher, all, all of these major filmmakers, they know they're noir. I mean, right. They really right. know they're noir. But I find it very exciting when they extend it in an interesting way that isn't an obvious imitation uh -huh. of what had gone before. I'll give you a classic example. The film Mulholland Falls, mm -hmm. right, with uh, Nick Nolte and Chaz Palminteri, it's not really very good. Sorry, uh, the, who, the guys who made that. But it was, a, it was an imitation of an old noir. Now, Mulholland Drive by David Lynch is a totally noir-informed movie that is nothing like typical film noir. I mean, it's a totally different thing. But it's about, you know, a Hollywood actress who loses her mind and it's a subconscious, you know, you're, you're experiencing her subconscious prior to her uh, hiring a murder to be committed. And then she ends up killing herself. That's pretty freaking noir, right? But it's told in a way that has, it's absolutely unrecognizable if you're looking for an imitation of classic noir. But it really is. I wasn't sure because uh, I watched a few months ago, watched Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And I started to wonder, is that a noir? Is that a tribute to noir? Is it just kind of, of course. a... Of course. Yeah. I mean, it's it's not super complicated. It's like a detective story with where the animated tunes are for real. I mean, that's that's what Roger Rabbit is, right? And yeah, I mean, and, and not only that, I think it's a great like double build uh, with Chinatown because they're both based on actual historical facts in Southern California, right? One about yeah. transportation, mm -hmm. the, the public transportation being destroyed so they could build the freeways and every and the car companies could sell everybody a car. And then the other one is about water. Like how do you how do you get water in a desert? Right. Well, corruption is the answer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, uh, I I have no hesitation include uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit in the discussion of noir, particularly as it applies to the actual noir history of Los Angeles. <laughs> right. Well, we can't let you go without uh, discussing the wonderful work you do with the uh, Film Noir Foundation as its founder and, and president. We've previously had Tracy Gossel on the show, who's uh, founder of the Film Preservation Society, and talked about the wonderful things they do with some of the old silent films. Could you talk a little bit about the work that the noir, Film Noir Foundation does in in promoting film noir and, and helping to prevent 
some of these great films from getting lost in the annals of time? Sure. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to plug that work. Yeah, I. it started out because there were movies that I uh, had seen on television or really bad tapes of. And it's like, when I started doing film festivals, why can't I show this movie? Why is there no 35 millimeter print of this film? And I got a crash course in why that all happens. And a lot of these movies are orphans because they were made independently, uh, separate from the studios. The studio may have distributed the films, but they didn't actually make them. So they didn't have them in inventory. They didn't own them, right? Uh, and in that case, they will, they could very easily disappear. So it was our own detective story of tracking down, do elements exist for these films? And can we clear the rights? And can we actually uh, find enough good material to restore the film and get it back in circulation? So that was how that all started. And then my searches overseas, because in some cases, I only found the elements in a foreign film archive. And then once I was overseas doing this research, then I started to discover foreign noir films that nobody had ever heard of. And so we've we've restored a lot of stuff from Argentina, which had an amazing, thriving film industry before, honestly, Hollywood kind of kiboshed that. And I'm finding this to be true all over the world, right? Finding stuff in uh, Norway and Spain and Germany. And, you know, there are noir. When I wrote my first book on film noir, I felt I was writing about a completely American phenomenon. And then lo and behold, 20 something, 25 years later, I realized, you know, it wasn't just happening here. It was actually happening all over the world because the films were shipped around and inspired each other. You know, when I watch the yeah. films in Argentina, it's like, well, this is a combination of Naked City and Brute Force. Two American films were clearly an influence on this film called A Penis on Delinquente, Hardly a Criminal. And you realize that that happens all over the world all the time. You just don't get to see the end result. And so I'm, I've been very excited about the Film Noir Foundation's work in restoring a lot of these foreign films and uh, and getting them back in circulation and, and kind of rewriting some of film history in the process. It's great. Well, as we mentioned in your bio, uh, quite the Renaissance man. You got a lot of irons in the fire. You alluded to uh, a new book project on the horizon. What's next for you? And how do all of our listeners uh, keep up with all things Eddie Muller? <laughs> well, the book on the horizon that you mentioned earlier, when you uh, mentioned Jessica and Forrest uh, Burdett is a children's book that I've written. Uh, Running Press said to me, we're thinking we've got this idea for a line of books called Kid Noir. Would you be interested in that? And I said, on one condition is, will the artwork be black and white? <laughs> right. Be because if it's black and white and a kid reads this book, then they're not going to be freaked out when they watch a black and white movie. Right. If they like the book and I do my job right and I tell them a good story, then when they see the black and white movie, they're going to say, oh, this is like that book I love. Yeah. yeah. Right? Soft launch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So so it's really important. I'll, I'll, I'll kind of wind things up by saying this. When I started doing all this work, 
it was all about, you know, preserving the films that I loved. Then it became through the festivals and then the foundation and everything, it became about preserving the experience of seeing these movies the way they were meant to be seen in a movie theater, right? Then I got this gig on TCM. And now we are really working diligently to preserve the audience for these films mm-hmm. and, and, and showing younger people don't make the mistake of thinking these are old corny movies that don't apply anymore. Right. Like, you know, Martin Scorsese said, there are no old movies. There are just movies you haven't seen yet. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And, and that's a hard idea for some people to grasp, but it's very true. I mean, once you realize that all movies are fake, all movies are artificial. The entire thing is a put on, right? So when you say, oh, that isn't realistic, it's like, I'm sorry, what movie is actually realistic? You know, it came from a place called the Dream Factory. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and then you have a great opportunity to think about, well, why were they made that way then? And they're made differently now, because then ah, once you ask those questions, then you're actually figuring out how culture works. Mm-hmm. you know, and how you make these transitions and are they good transitions or not? <laughs> Ask TCM fans their opinion <laughs> of that, right? Yeah, I mean, all, you know, every every single thing is prefaced with, they don't make them like that anymore. You know, it's like, <laughs> yeah, they, they don't. And there's a reason why they don't. But that doesn't mean you should stop watching the ones that were made back then. Yep, absolutely. Well, uh, we're glad that we've been able to spend some time with you and get that message out to our listeners, because I don't think uh, there's two guys who feel more strongly that way than Greg and I. Oh, fantastic. You guys are great. I really, uh, this this was great fun. I thank you so much for having me on. And I really appreciate your drinking the Sailor Beware and giving it a thumbs up. And and now I think I'm going to have to go make one of my own. We just had a new deck built in the house. We're going to have Matt over. We're going to do our next In the Mix segment and drink that and, and yep. tribute to um, your book and the film. Maybe we'll screen the film while we're while we're doing it. Fantastic. Thanks, Eddie. It's been fun. Right, thanks. A- absolute pleasure, guys. Thank you so much. Well, thank you again to our guest, Eddie Muller. His new book, Eddie Muller's Noir Bar, Cocktails Inspired by the World of Film Noir, hits shelves on May 23rd and is available now for pre-order and linked in our show notes. Join us on Friday, May 26th for episode 75 as we celebrate with special guest Chris Lemon, author, television and film actor, star of the acclaimed one-man show A Twist of Lemon, and, as you might have guessed it, son of beloved Oscar-winning actor Jack Lemon. Episode 75, Friday, May 26th, so mark your calendars. And if you enjoyed episode 74, please make sure to follow us and share the podcast with a friend. You can find all the latest on HeilmanandHaber.com, along with all of our past episodes, stage reviews, and popular segments like Get to Know a Theater, In the Mix, and Behind the Scenes Artist Interviews. As always, thank you for supporting local theater and for joining us on Heilman and Haber. 